Mobility was always the key to Apache success. The Apache warrior did not throw his life away with careless bravado, but carefully sought just the right time to strike, flee, or make a stand. History is the most important tool for change. In order to improve ourselves, we must look into our past to understand our shortcomings and our achievements. Sometimes events and people are lost and not taught in schools. Join me as I take a look into human history and rediscover these people and events that have shaped our lives and find out why we're here. Greed, corruption, sacrifice, heroism, and so much more in the third installment to the Apache War Saga. The Apaches fight back against their oppression and are hunted by everyone. Welcome to Why We're Here podcast, and I'm your host, Garrett Shields. In this third part of our Apache War series, we continue the journey of the struggles faced by the Apache tribes as they attempt to return to their homelands and their way of life, no matter the stakes at hand. In case you forgot and don't want to go back to the last episode, my source for this series comes from the book, The Apache Wars, The Hunt for Geronimo, The Apache Kid, and the Captive Boy Who Started the Longest War in American History by Paul Andrew Hutton. Like I've said before, there is so much more in this book that could fit here, so please find this book and give it a read, or a listen if it's on Audible or any audio platform. So let's get right into this with a quick recap of what happened last week. The Camp Grant Massacre brought in Vincent Collier to set up boundaries for new reservations, and Lieutenant Colonel George Crook was sent to lead the military against any non-complying Apaches, and started using Apaches as scouts to assist his campaign. General Oliver Howard was also sent in to establish peace and created the definitive lines for the reservations. His treaty with Cochise was also established, which angered Crook because he never got to see the stipulations of the treaty. Now with the reservations in place, the delusion of one man's ideology foolishly put enemy tribes together in one place, which caused the rising tensions among the Apaches. The collection of all these tribes away from their homeland brewed grief and rebellion stirred, resulting in the escape of some. But after they were kept from returning home, one band decided to fight back, regardless of whether they lived or died. Even peaceful intentions sparked paranoia amongst the settlers, who blamed an innocent man for causing so much death when he tried to obtain unity. The constant removal of Apaches from the reservations led to many of them breaking out, which labeled them as fugitives to be hunted and killed with no regard to the consequences. The beginning to all this was the disregard to properly manage the reservations. Not surprisingly, many issues arose at the reservations. One major problem was the murder of an army lieutenant at San Carlos. The Indians responsible had fled and Crook ordered their heads. Literally. The scouts had brought in the seven heads of the perpetrators. The assassination had resulted in San Carlos being considered to be closed. On top of the reservation had gone through five agents in 18 months. The Indian Bureau planned to relocate the Indians to Camp Apache, but the agent there was having his own difficulties with the White Mountain people. With no one willing to serve as the agent, the commissioner of the Bureau hired 22-year-old John P. Clum at the ridiculously low pay of $1,500 per year. Clum was introduced to Howard at D.C., who gave him a crash course on Grant's peace policy, the Apaches, the Camp Grant Massacre, and the local civilian and military personalities. He was also given copies of Collier's reports. Clum's shock of how pitiful his pay would be did not compare to the shock of seeing seven rotting heads displayed on the parade ground upon his arrival to San Carlos. To add to that, the Apache scouts brought in the scalped head of the main Indian involved in the lieutenant's murder. 
Plum decided to hold a meeting with the leaders of the Pinal and the Ravipa at San Carlos to lay down his expectations. He wanted the Apaches to participate in the reservation government. He intended to ban the army presence and enact an Indian police force, and any criminal offenders would be tried by an Apache court and be held at the local guardhouse. All the weapons had to be locked up but could be checked out for hunting. Alcohol would be strictly prohibited. Everyone was expected to work six days a week and would be paid in paper chits that could be redeemed at the agency store. And lastly, his door would be open to speak freely of any complaints and concerns. Clum's management was a huge success, so much so that the commissioner sought to consolidate more Apaches at San Carlos to open up more land to white settlers. He proposed to close Camp Verde and move the Tonto and Yavapa to San Carlos. Crook was outraged by this, but was forced to assist the removal of the 1,476 Apaches over the 180 miles. The Yavapa would call this the March of Tears. The exodus from Camp Verde began on February 27, 1875, but was slowed down by a brutal snowstorm. All their possessions had to be carried in baskets on their backs, and the weakest among them began to fall during the first week. The commander of the exodus gave no time for burials. The rations had depleted by the first week, and the cattle were wandering off. One freezing night, the Yavapa had been pushed past their limit. They rode through the main camp in search of the commander with faces painted for war. Luckily, Mickey Free was assisting the pack train and stood between the Yavapa and the commander. Mickey set the commander ahead of the column to San Carlos for more supplies. Clum was already leading a wagon train to meet them halfway when he ran into the commander. He arrived with the supplies, and Clum and Mickey counted the 1,361 Indians that would now populate San Carlos. The remaining 115 Apaches had either died or fled. Now Clum began to measure his success by the number of Indians under his management. He saw it as a better way of life for them, and in June of 1875, he was given permission to relocate the Western Apaches from the dismal Camp Apache to San Carlos. Eskimenzen, who was now at San Carlos, helped convince the Apaches to make the move. Clum now had officially 4,200 Apaches under his control, but that did not stop him from turning his attention to the Chiricahuas. A year ago, on June 7th, Cochise and Taglito met for the final time. Cochise had been ill for months and asked Taglito, quote, Do you think you will ever see me alive again? And Taglito responded, No, I do not think I will. I think that by tomorrow night, you will be dead. Cochise died the next morning. Taglito joined with Cochise's family to bury his body. He had escaped Crook's wrath. At the Chiricahua Reservation, Jeffords, a.k.a. Taglito, was very capable of keeping control, despite his liberal management, which attracted the restless bands. Geronimo and Wu used the reservation as a sanctuary while they continued to raid in Mexico. However, Jeffords was able to recover stolen stock and even a kidnapped Mexican boy from them. After the death of Cochise, his son Taza was challenged for his place as the new chief. Nyeche's father-in-law, Skimya, and another warrior, Piensene, wanted to divide Taza and Nyeche. A fight had broke out at a Tizwin gathering, and two men were killed. Skimya and Piensene fled the reservation, and Taza and Nyeche went to meet with the fugitives. They wanted the brothers to break the peace with the White Eyes, but the argument ended with Piensene wounded and Skimya dead. Geronimo later arrived to help with the plot to kill Taza and Nyeche. However, Jeffords convinced the warrior to parley at Fort Bowie. Before this meeting would take place, the Arizona governor sent a recommendation to D.C. to close the Chiricahua Reservation. Clum was ordered to suspend Jeffords, close the reservation, and relocate the Apaches to San Carlos. 
The Secretary of War ordered Colonel August Kautz to replace Crook, who had relocated north for the anticipated war with the Sioux Indians, and Kautz was to provide troops to support the removal of the Chiricahuas. On June 5, 1876, Taza, Naich, and Jeffords arrived at Fort Bowie in Apache Pass with 250 Chiricahuas to meet with Geronimo and Wu. Kautz and Clum followed behind with troops, and Clum handed Jeffords his letter of dismissal. Taza was shocked to hear this news and now had to choose between removal and war. He was determined to keep the peace his father strove for, so Taza reluctantly agreed to move his people. A special council was then held between Wa and Geronimo and Kautz and Clum. Wa was given four days to bring their people to Camp Bowie, but Clum pointed out to Kautz that they had no intention of going to San Carlos. Al Sieber's scouts were sent after the fleeing Nednies, but they had made their way to Sonora before the path could be blocked. A week later, Clum departed from Fort Bowie with 300 Chaconans, 22 Badonkohes, and 42 Chiricahuas. Since many of the Chiricahuas had fled to New Mexico or south with Geronimo, that low number was reported as proof against Jeffords as fraud for the rations at the Chiricahua Reservation. Then, in late September, Taza dies of pneumonia during his trip to D.C., which made Nyeh now in charge of the Chaconans, who did not give the novice leader much respect. Nyeh would later turn to Geronimo for counsel. Geronimo and Wu had headed for Sonora, but the Mexican state was in turmoil, so Geronimo decided to ride north to New Mexico to visit his brother-in-law, Nana, at the Ojo Caliente Reservation, while Wu went southwest to the Sierra Madre. Chief Loco was unhappy with Geronimo's presence there, and both Nana and Victorio were also wary. Victorio did not care for Geronimo, because he believed the Bitocohe's warfare cost too many lives and only served his glory and pride. But he was moved by Geronimo's plight, and the laws of kinship and hospitality outweighed Victorio's personal views. After the discovery of Geronimo's location, Clum was ordered to arrest him and remove his followers to San Carlos, but Clum instead requested military assistance to remove all Apaches from Ojo Caliente. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs approved the request. Clum and his San Carlos police rode to the reservation and met with more Apache scouts. They arrived on October 20th, 1877, and found out that the military could not arrive for another two days. Clum knew Geronimo would discover them if they waited, so he ordered the scouts to hide in the commissary under cover of darkness, and a message was sent to request a parley with Geronimo. Clum rode into the agency with 22 Apache police, knowing that number would be reported to Geronimo. The next morning, Geronimo rode into the agency ahead of his warriors with 50 members of his band. Clum stepped out of the main building, hand on his hip above his Colt 45, and told the Bitokohe that he was under arrest. Geronimo laughed and responded, quote, Boss with the high forehead, you talk very brave, but we are not going to San Carlos with you. And unless you are very careful, you and your Apache police will not go back to San Carlos either. Your bodies will stay here to make food for the coyotes. End quote. Clum then touched his left hand to his sombrero to signal the 80 scouts waiting. The commissary doors sprang open and Geronimo's men were surrounded. Clum next placed his hand to his revolver, and the police force aimed their rifles as Clum took Geronimo's rifle and placed him in chains. A few days later, Clum met with Victorio and the other Warm Springs leaders to inform them that Ojo Caliente was being closed and they were to be moved to San Carlos. Victorio was shocked to be moved so far from their homeland and sent to live with the different bands, many with old blood feuds. Now that the soldiers had arrived, Victorio was left with little choice but to comply. He told his people, though, to hide their weapons in hopes they would return. 
Some of the families resisted and fled for the hills, while the other 435 Warm Springs Apaches were brought to San Carlos, and Geronimo was locked in the guardhouse. As the summer of 1877 began, Clum and Coutts would repeatedly butt heads on many issues, which resulted in Clum's resignation on July 1st. A temporary agent was placed at San Carlos to watch over the nearly 5,000 Apaches crammed there. Many problems were stacking on top of one another, such as feuds between lifetime enemy tribes, delayed and insufficient rations, and outbreaks of a malaria and smallpox. The agent also released Geronimo and declared him, quote, thoroughly subdued. In August, Jeffords visited with NIH, Geronimo, and Victorio to find them irritable and restless and warn the agent of a possible outbreak. Then, on September 1st, the outbreak had occurred. Under the cover of night, Piancene rode into San Carlos and provided the spark to escape. Victorio sought counsel with his sister Lozen, and she agreed that escape was best. Lozen was Victorio's most trusted advisor because the Chiricahua believed that she could foresee the future, along with her ability to heal the sick. She was different from the other women. She rejected marriage, fought alongside Victorio in battle, and was noted for her wisdom and courage. The Warm Springs people called her Little Sister, while Geronimo called her Warrior Woman. The next night, the Warm Springs people left for New Mexico in four groups, Victorio, Nana, Mangus, son of Mangus Coloradus, and Chief Loco, who was against the outbreak at first, led the 310 fleeing Apaches. Geronimo was purposely left because they blamed him for their removal from Ojo Caliente. Piancene provided the cover by stealing horses and headed into Mexico to reunite with Wa. The Apache police force did, however, follow one of the escaping bands, but the trail was lost. Despite the fact that the scouts knew the direction headed toward Ojo Caliente, they could never find the Warm Springs people, which the Apaches attributed this to Lozen's power. She led her people through rough lava beds near Fort Wingate, and the commander there had anticipated this. He sent out scouts to feed and care for any Apache willing to come to the fort. Victorio and Loco decided to take 187 of their people to Fort Wingate and soon others hidden in the mountains followed suit. The fort commander wanted Victoria's people to return to Ojo Caliente, and that is where they were sent to await the decision of the Department of Interior. General Phil Sheridan also urged the department to leave them there. Unfortunately, the Indian Bureau and the Army had always clashed on any decision that regarded the Indians. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs had always sought to just ship them all to Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, the Secretary of Interior hated Sheridan and the military, so he would oppose any opinions they had. Sheridan was able to keep the Apaches from relocating to Indian Territory, but they could not stay at Ojo Caliente because the property had already been sold. Sheridan responded that the Apaches had been treated as prisoners of war and were being fed by the army, and if the Bureau did not take charge, he would set them free. It was decided on August 31st, 1878, that the Warm Springs Apaches would return to San Carlos. When Victoria and Loco were informed of their return, they reluctantly agreed to go, but the next day, Victoria's people had split into small groups and fled to the mountains. Troops were sent to pursue them, but it seemed that they had vanished. Loco and the remaining 173 Warm Springs arrived back at San Carlos on November 25th, while Victoria's people had reunited in the mountains before splitting again. Nana and Lozen led a group of 60 people, mostly women and children, toward the Mescalero Reservation. They reached the Rio Grande, and Nana took his warriors to search for food while Lozen led the rest across the swollen river. A horse and its rider were pulled downstream, so Lozen galloped along the bank and jumped into the water to rescue the rider. 
After they safely forded the river, Lozen ordered them to ride Salinas Peak to await Nana's return. Lozen crossed back over the river in search of her brother. Victorio finally reunited with his people, and he agreed to parley with the agent at the Mescalero Reservation. The agent refused to issue them any rations, so Victorio and Nana fled, taking all the Chahinis and many Mescaleros with them to Salinas Peak. Victorio and Lozen reached an agreement that they could not win a war against the White Eyes. It would have to be a war to the death with no hope of victory. They would die a warrior's death with honor and glory. So the first target of their war had to be symbolic. It would be Ojo Caliente. On September 4, 1879, Victorio led the attack on the army camp there, killing all eight members of the horse guard and taking off with 68 horses and mules. A week later, they struck just south of the mining camp and troops were sent to chase them. They followed Victoria's trail right into an ambush. The soldiers had to abandon their 53 mounts, their personal equipment, and the hospital wagon. The army was now on high alert, sending over a thousand men to take down Victorio and his band, but the Apaches continued to escape after each skirmish. They would destroy any water holes as they fled by submerging coyote guts or collapsing the banks. If the soldiers got too close, the elderly and mothers with newborns were hidden in the mountains. The band attacked the outskirts of San Carlos in hopes to free Loco and the other Chihinis, but failed because the remaining Warm Springs people and the Chiricahuas removed to the main agency in case of Victorio's return. Sieber, now leading the Apache scouts at San Carlos, pursued Victorio and his band, but they had found refuge across the border in the Candelaria Mountains. A Mexican militia discovered them and attacked, but the warriors were able to ambush the Mexicans, slaying 30 men. The governor of Chihuahua was alerted to Victorio and sent two columns after him, one of which was commanded by his brother, Colonel Joaquin Terrazas. Victorio's people converged in the Candelaria Mountains after an escape from an attack by U.S. soldiers. Victorio had been wounded and Lozen was missing because she had backtracked to find a pregnant woman who had disappeared. No one spoke her name, which signified that they believed her dead. They decided to split up again and continued to stay on the move to avoid detection. One of the small bands was found at the Mexican border, and Victorio's son was killed in the skirmish. After another failed attempt to sneak into the U.S., Victorio led his people deeper into Mexico. Colonel Terrazas followed the Apaches toward Tres Casillos, which were a group of rocky outcroppings with springs sprinkled among them. The night before, Victorio held a council for his warriors. They would split into three groups. Victorio would lead the main group to Tres Castillos, and Nana and the warrior Caetane would rendezvous there later. Terrazas took 11 men and reached Tres Casillos on October 14, 1880, ahead of his troops so they could climb the highest peak and watch for Victorio's band. He spotted them approaching and they left to rejoin the main column. Once Victorio's group arrived, they were building fires and setting up camp when the Mexicans appeared. Victorio led his warriors out to face the advancement. The Mexican scouts rode ahead to face the Apaches and their leader, Mauricio Corredor, broke ahead to challenge the chief. Victorio accepted by charging Corredor as the scout leader dismounted. He aimed his rifle and shot Victorio off his horse with one bullet. The warriors rushed to their fallen chief and carried him away to the south mountain as the Mexicans took position at its base and on the middle mountain. The dust clouds from the Mexican troops had cut off Nana and Ketane from rejoining the brethren, so they pulled back. The Mexicans did not advance up the South Mountain that night as the Apaches sung their death song for Victorio. At dawn, Terrazas sent his soldiers up the mountain. The spent ammunition from the day before forced the Apaches to fight hand-to-hand -hand as they jumped from behind boulders and attacked with spears and knives. Some of them fled but were cut down by Mexican snipers. The last of Victorio's warriors waited atop the hill as the Mexicans approached. They pulled out their knives and pierced their own hearts. 
The Mexicans headed back to Chihuahua City with the prisoners to be sold as slaves or concubines. Mana sent a small group to follow them in case any captives snuck away while he searched the mountains for survivors. Terrazos returned to Chihuahua as a hero, and the soldiers paraded through the town with ten-foot poles that collectively featured 78 scalps. Corredor had the privilege to carry the scalp of Victorio since he was credited to slaying the Warm Springs chief. The 68 women and children brought in were later sold into slavery. Nana, now the chief, led the remaining survivors back to New Mexico and camped in the Florida mountains. Suddenly, a lone rider with a rifle was spotted approaching the camp. It was Lozen. She told them her story of staying with the woman to help her give birth and hid her from the bluecoats to steal a horse and take her to the Mescalero Reservation. While there, Lozen heard the news of the battle at Tres Castillos, so she rode out to find them. A feast was held that night to honor the warriors. Their names were called out, including the warrior woman herself. While the Warm Springs Apaches were still at Ojo Caliente, waiting for their fate, Colonel Kautz was removed as department commander and replaced by Orlando B. Wilcox. Mickey Free had joined the scouts at a mining camp to protect San Carlos from the greedy miners. The corrupt agent at San Carlos had stripped 12 miles from the reservation to allow more mining. This and other scandals drove to his removal. Geronimo had fled San Carlos to join Wa and Llanos. After Seaver and his scouts lost Victorio's trail, they went to Camp Thomas, and he ran into the newly rich Jeffords, who had struck gold in Tombstone. Wilcox had admired Jeffords, and asked him to assemble a peace mission with Wa and Geronimo. Victorio's slaughters of the Mexican militia had placed the Apaches on the Mexicans' radar, which forced Wa to relocate. Wa agreed to return on the conditions they could keep their weapons, no one would be arrested, and they could settle near Nyeche's Chaconans. On January 7, 1880, Wa and Geronimo led 103 Apaches into San Carlos, where Jeffords was asked to be the new agent, but he recommended Kit Carson from Part 1, who Wilcox also endorsed. However, the Indian Bureau chose to appoint the inexperienced and religious Joseph Tiffany, who would be the last agent appointed under Grant's peace policy, and his tenure would become the epitome of controversy. Tiffany took command of the 4,561 Apaches on June 1st. He was sympathetic to the Chiricahuas and did what little he could to accommodate them. He also removed Mickey as the interpreter because the one-eyed Apache scout angered Geronimo and the other Chiricahua leaders for being the cause of the war. Mickey would later be hired as an interpreter for a census collector on the reservation in 1881, when he would first begin to hear about the rumors of a man who could resurrect the fallen chiefs. After the battle at Tres Castillos in October, Nana established a rancheria in the Sierra Madre, where the remaining Chihenes and Mescaleros replenished supplies by raiding. There, they heard of the same rumors of an Apache who preached a new religion. It was said he could perform a dance that would bring the great chiefs of the past back to life to lead one final battle and restore their homeland. Nana was curious and decided to travel in secret back to San Carlos to learn more. He gained help from Nyeche, and they traveled together to find this man at Fort Apache. This dreamer, as the White Eyes called him, was the leader of the Sibuku band of Western Apaches and a medicine man named Nake de Klene. He was friendly with the Whites and even served as a scout during Crook's campaign against the Tontos. His band was removed to San Carlos in 1875, and they drifted north to camp near Fort Apache. He obtained a pass from Tiffany in May of 1881 to move his camp to Sibiku Creek, where he began his dance and preached his new religion, which blended Christian resurrection beliefs with nativist desires. His dance was also a precursor to the ghost dance that would lead to the massacre of the Sioux Indians. 
He preached peace among the various Western Apache bands, but as more and more Apaches traveled to watch and join his dance, rumors spread that it was intended to induce a final strike against the White Eyes. The gathering involved a distribution of Tiswin before the dance, while many people brought offerings. The people danced in lines facing the center like spokes of a wheel throughout the night. They would toss the pollen of a tool plant used as a sacrificial powder called hodotin. Then at dawn, the dance was halted, and a handful of followers were taken to a hillside as the sun rose. Nana and Ketane returned to the Sierra Madre, newly enlightened from this experience. Nana claimed to have seen Mangus Coloradus, Cochise, and Victorio rise from the ground to their knees before returning to the earth as the sun rose higher. He was inspired to avenge the death of Victorio, but the resurrection could not be completed while the White Eyes remained. Nana planned a raid to speed up Victorio's return. Between July and August of 1881, Nana's warriors raided throughout the southwest. They overtook a stagecoach and a small wagon train, killing four surveyors in Texas. Nana recruited more mescaleros to help ambush an army pack train in Alamo Canyon. The troops followed the trail of mutilated bodies left by the raiders, but they had slipped away. Seven settlers were killed and a civilian posse was ambushed at the San Mateo Mountains. The warriors killed two soldiers during a running battle along Cachillo Negro Creek. The six weeks of raids cost the lives of at least 50 civilians and soldiers, with seven captives and over 200 livestock taken. Over a thousand troops pursued the warriors, but it was all overshadowed in the east by the shooting and death of President Garfield. Wilcox and Tiffany felt that one Apache was to blame, the Dreamer. The Fort Apache agent, Colonel Eugene Carr, did not see the Dreamer as a threat. Mickey Free had been in the Sibiqui camp to spy on the Dreamer and was astonished to see so many enemy tribes there together peacefully. Both Wilcox and Tiffany ordered Carr to arrest the Dreamer, or kill him if he had to. Carr was hesitant of the loyalty of his Apache scouts, but went ahead and sent one of them to have the Dreamer come to the fort. The scout returned with news that an important dance was scheduled for Friday and Carr would have to wait until it was performed. Lieutenant Bork visited the fort for a few days during a detached duty, and Carr asked him if he could visit the White Mountain Apaches. Bork agreed, and he returned uneasy, warning Carr of talk of war. So Carr assembled his troops, scouts, and a few civilians, including a 16-year-old son, and they headed toward Sibiqui Creek. A single scout was sent ahead to assure the Apaches of Carr's peaceful intent. On August 30th, Carr's column entered the Dreamer's camp to bring him back to Fort Apache to talk. However, if he attempted to escape, they would not hesitate to kill him. The Dreamer asked to have his wife join, and Carr accepted. They led the Dreamer away as Apache warriors appeared, painted for combat. The warriors began to cross into Carr's camp, just east of the creek, and Carr ordered the Dreamer to be guarded near the baggage. The scouts were taking position next to the warriors. Then, one of the warriors shrieked a war cry. Gunshots are heard! Mickey Free raced to Seven Mile Canyon near Fort Apache to find the slaughter of two telegraph repairmen, a soldier, and three Mormons. All had their heads smashed with a rock. Mickey recognized the White Mountain Apaches responsible for this attack. He rode to Fort Grant to add this incident to his account of the battle at Sibiqui Creek before it broke out. Wilcox received the telegraph stating that it seemed, quote, beyond doubt that Carr and command were killed, end quote. The day after the battle, many Apaches were seen on the nearby hillsides from Fort Apache. Mrs. Carr sent the young telegraph operator, Will Barnes, to a high mesa in search of her husband. Barnes rode the risky journey past several abandoned campsites. He spotted the Apache smoke signals while on the mesa. Then he saw a small band of warriors headed in his direction. Instead of running, 
Barnes pulled out his rifle to fight, but before he was able to shoot, a large dust cloud approached the Apaches. It was Carr's column. Barnes flagged the good news to the fort and then rode off to join the troops midst the gunfire after him. The battered column returned to Fort Apache on the 1st of September with many conflicting accounts of what had happened during the battle. But one detail was consistent. The Apache scouts had mutinied. It was also discovered that once the attack had commenced, Carr ordered the death of the Dreamer, who was shot. But after the dust had cleared, one of the troops discovered the Dreamer was still alive. So a soldier raised an axe and ended the Dreamer's life. And that's the end of Part 3. It was the congregation of so many tribes at San Carlos that led Victorio and Geronimo to break out and raid throughout the Southwest and Mexico, causing unease and unrest between the settlers and the Apaches, which resulted in the death of a powerful leader. Next week, we will discuss the aftermath of the Dreamer's death and what the battle at Sibiqui Creek meant for the Apache scouts. The hunt for Geronimo, considered America's most notorious murderer at the time, begins, and the Apaches are once again removed from their homes. If you have any questions or comments or even suggestions, you can reach me by email at whywearehearepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at whywearehearepodcast and on Twitter at whywearehearepod. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes to find out why we're here.